Luke 23, uh, beginning in verse 32. We read that this morning. Luke 23, verse 32, going through verse 43. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one to, on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. And there was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed against him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourselves and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has, nothing, has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus... Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, Today you will be with me in paradise. Have you uh, ever watched a nature documentary and heard a pack of hyenas? Hyenas, I just think hyenas are terrible. Uh, At the risk of offending hyena fans, (laughs) I'm going to take a strong stance on this one. They're just terrible. Just terrible. If you've ever seen a documentary or, you know, a nature, a nature flick showing hyenas, this is what I picture in this moment. This is what I picture in this moment as Jesus is hung on this cross and this pack of circling jackals is moving around him, gloating over a feast they did not prepare. That's the whole disgusting part of what it means to be a scavenger hunt. Gloating over a feast they did not prepare. You know, gloating over a kill they could not have made themselves. And they're just circling. The Psalms rehearse this moment, this particular aspect of the cross, almost more than any other aspect of the cross. If you want to get this understanding of this circling jackal ethos, the Psalms reports it over and over again. In Psalm 22, the writer says, All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. You know, even more than just the prediction of a coming Messiah who would suffer and be ridiculed by these circling scavengers, the Psalms actually use a particular phrase to describe this, this feeling, this, the sound that these hyenas make. And it's, it's, the, it's the word ha-ha. Aha! If you were to search aha in your Bibles, most of the results would come from the book of Psalms. Psalm 35, 21. They open wide their mouths against me and they say, Aha! Aha! Our eyes have seen it. Let them not say in their hearts, Aha! Our hearts desire. Let them not say we have swallowed him up. Psalm 40. Let those be appalled because of their shame who say to me, Aha! Psalm 70. 
Let them turn back because of their shame, those who say, Aha. The Greek, the Hebrew word, sorry, the Hebrew word for aha, appearing so many times in the book of Psalms, also many times in the book of Ezekiel, is pronounced heha. Heha. It's really close to our aha, and it carries this sense of now I've got you. Now I've caught you. Now I have you where I want you. There are many things happening at the cross in this particular moment, but the prevailing theme in this particular moment is a kind of self-righteous chortling. In fact, Mark, in his recounting of this story, tells us that the word aha was actually used. Mark fifteen twenty nine through 32 says, And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads. That's another term. That's another, that's another image we get of, of chortling, of arrogant gloating. Wagging their heads and saying, Aha! You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests and the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, air quotes, right? Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified also with him also reviled him. So in various ways throughout his ministry, Jesus has claimed to be the Messiah. He's claimed then not only to be the Messiah, but to be God of very God. He, he said, I am, and almost got stoned for that claim of deity. So in various ways, Jesus has claimed a lot. He said a lot about who he is. But consider now what these scoffers actually see. What do they see? They see an utterly defeated man, a broken man, an empty man, a naked man, a suffocating man. In other words, all of these ahas are coming because they think they see a man whose mouth wrote checks his body couldn't cash. That's why they say, aha. Verse 35. People stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, what he claims, let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. Verse 36 and 37, The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. Verse 38, there was an inscription over him, The king of the Jews, in sarcastic air quotes. One of the criminals who was hanged with him railed against him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. You know, they took his clothing, but I don't think Jesus was the only thing exposed in this moment. I happen to think that the true nature of fallen man is every bit as exposed as Jesus is in this moment. See, I happen to believe that sin itself has been stripped in this moment of all of its external layers. And you see in this moment sin for what it really is at the foot of the cross. What you see in this moment is God says one thing, I see another thing, and I will castigate him 
and slander him with the difference between those two things. God says something. I see something else. And what do I do with the difference between what God says and what I see? Friends, that's, that's really making all the difference in your life. That's, that's really the primary indicator of your current joy and your future joy. Inevitably in this life, you will encounter massive gaps between what God says and what you see. And the greatest predictor for your current and future joy is how you resolve the tension between those two things. And sin, sin looks, stands in that gap and says, God's a liar. What I see is more real than what he says. And that's what everybody in this text seems to be doing. They all seem to be struck by this tension between who Jesus claims to be and what they see with their own eyes. And what they do with that tension is they slander God. They castigate. They cackle. They say, aha! You know, I hope that phrase really sticks in your head. The difference between what God says and what I see. Because the truth is, the Bible is full of big claims. That God created the universe. That He created you. That He is good. That He is in total control of all things at all times. The Bible claims that we should worship God and obey Him. The Bible claims that He creates good things, but He also has the authority to tell us that some of those good things aren't for us. He has The Bible claims that He performs miracles. The Bible claims that He judges the prideful. Those are the things that God says. But what do we see when we look into the world? There's a distance there between what God says and what we see. The world often looks like it's in chaos. Suffering is pronounced. And how can a God who is in control of everything be good if there is so much suffering that I see? Honestly, the prideful seem to be doing better than the humble. And plenty of people who have rejected God's standards over their sexuality, their morality, their money, seem to be doing quite well. There's always a tension between what God says and what I see. That is the human experience. We are destined to spend all of our lives living in that gap. And if we learn how to respond rightly to that gap, we will be blessed. But if we respond wrongly to that gap, which it is absolutely human nature to respond wrongly to that gap, we will be cursed. This is just what it means to know God. The second God decided to reveal himself to us, the second God decided to create us and reveal himself to us, he created a relationship that would have gaps between what he sees and what we see. God in infinite, eternal, transcendent state creates human beings who are mortal and limited by time and space. That relationship is going to have a lot of gaps. You know, I've, I've taken my wife shopping before at really trendy places. And, and I I've, I've just feel so out of place. 
Like, my wife's great. She can be trendy when she needs to. She can not be. She can adjust, right? She can step into those moments. She can be where she needs to be. But, man, I just get into those moments, and I just feel irreparably lame. (laughs) It's just this truth of life that if we are going to relate to God, there will be these massive gaps between what He sees and says and what we see. And figuring out how to resolve that tension in a way that doesn't castigate him is honestly basically the challenge of life. So basically, figure that out, you figured out how to live. And man, we never really figure it out. But we can get the answers. We can get the answers to the test and at least kind of learn. And we can depend on someone who got it right. That's where we're at today. That's what we're talking about. How do you reconcile the difference between what God says and what we see? And this is the basic question. In the end, we must decide which is ultimate. That which God says or that which we see. I initially wanted to talk about faith and unbelief. And I will talk about that a little bit as we end this message. I do not like the word unbelief. It's a Bible word, so I need to get over it. But let me explain why I don't like it. Unbelief implies the absence of belief. But that's not what unbelief is. No one's talking about the option between believing God or not believing anything. Right? No one's talking about the option between belief and non-belief. What we're really asking is this. Whose eyes are we going to trust? Right? Who are we going to trust? That which God says or that which we see? Whose insight, whose observation will we trust? That's the question. Will I trust myself or will I trust God? That's the basic question of how to resolve the tension between what God says and what we see. Will I trust what he says or will I trust what he sees or what I see? That's the real question. When we talk about faith and unbelief and those kinds of words, that's really where it all lands. Where do I respond? How do I respond when there's that gap? And man, there's almost always that gap. The people who are circling the cross with aha are acting entirely naturally. You know, even, even automatopoeia, you know, the, the idea that there are these words that sound like the thing, Aha, like it's, 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 this, it's this exhale after you've been surprised by something, right? Aha, it's, it's, this, it's almost a natural thing that comes out of the human body. I mean, isn't it interesting that, that, that the Hebrew word for this and our word for this, they aren't that far apart. It, it's sort of this natural exhale of superiority and arrogance. It's this natural exhale. No one has to teach our kids how to gloat. Right? So the people who are circling the cross with aha are acting like people. They are doing what sinful, fallen human beings do. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Earlier in 1 Corinthians and chapter 1, verse 18, it says, For the word, the word, what God says, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. 
But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The most natural response that you are capable of, of a human being, as a human being, to the gap between what God says and what, God, what you see, the most natural response is what you see in Luke 23. Aha. I got you, God. You said this, but that ain't what I see. That's the natural human response. I think, in part, that may be what Jesus is talking about when he says, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. These people are exhaling. They're doing something as natural to the human heart as exhaling. They are responding to this gap with the cynicism and the arrogance that every human being responds to in every instance when they are faced with this gap. Now, I just use some universal comprehensive language. Every human being, every situation, always. Is that really the case? Listen to Genesis 3. I'm going to read it. And I want you to listen for the God says, I see. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruits of the trees of the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. So yeah, I, I stand by my alls and alwayses. I stand by that because this is the root of the original sin. Is to hear God say, but see something different and side with what we see rather than what, with what God says. Look at verse 32 back in our text. Luke 32, uh, 23, 39, sorry. One of the criminals who was... Uh, hanged with him, railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. The point I want to make is that we are so naturally arrogant that even in our most dire situations, we will not suddenly, in and of ourselves, see. We will not be in a moment where seeing happens because of our circumstances. Our circumstances do not provoke seeing. Even in the worst and most humbling of moments, if we, got, if we entered into that a jerk, we'll probably stay a jerk through it. And if our general approach to resolving the gap between what God says and what we see is to blame Him, is to castigate and mock then we'll still probably do that in the middle of suffering. We're just so naturally arrogant, so naturally self-righteous that we make hay out of this distance. And, and friends, you've done this. I've done this this week. God says he's good, but I see. Fill in your blank. God says he's loving, but I see. 
God says he knows best, but I want. God says he's sovereign, but I see. You know, it is, it is amazing how patient God is with all of this nonsense. Without his patient forbearance, we will never ask the other question. What does God see when he looks at me? What does God see when he looks at me? Forget about what I see when I look at this thing with these, these eyes that will only work for about half my lifetime. I'm not bitter. What does God see when he looks at me? How does he interpret the gap between what I say and what he sees? What does God see in me? That's, the, that's the, the path to the road to resolving this issue correctly. To understand that the question, that the, the responsibility to resolve the gap between what God, see, what, what God says and what we see, that's a secondary issue. The primary issue is what God sees when he looks at me, not what I see and interpret about God based on my circumstances and so on and so forth. You know, my wife said this the other day. She's like, I, I've been thinking so much about what I think of God. And I've got to remember that's the second question. The first question is, what does God think of me? So let's talk about how to apply this very simple principle. Let's talk about how God applies this very simple principle. This is more of one of those messages where we just walk away saying, God has applied this message. <laughs> The first point to, to just notice is that Christ's love was greater than the instinct for self-preservation. Christ's love was greater than the instinct for self-preservation. We made this point two weeks ago. That there was something that allowed Jesus to empty himself out totally. And we noted at the time, that's not a normal human behavior at all. We always usually save a little bit in reserve. But, but let's think about this idea a little bit more. That Christ's love is greater than self-preservation. In this particular case, everybody's making a lot of hay out of the fact that Jesus remains on the cross. They're saying, if, if you claim to be God, then surely you would not stay on the cross. The gap here is enforced with a group of presuppositions. The math is simple. Human beings cannot conceive of using power to sacrifice oneself. They can only perceive of using power to save oneself. If you are God, this is essentially the underlying current they're saying, if you are God, if you were God, then you would do what we would do if we were God. Save yourself. If you are all you claim to be, then why don't you come down from the cross? It simply never occurred to them that there may exist in the world a force more powerful than self-preservation. And that force is love. Something more powerful than self-preservation kept God on the cross. Love. 
one of the criminals railed against him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal somehow knew he can't save himself and us. That's not how this works. He can't save himself and us. It has to be one or the other. Someone's got to pay for our sins. Speaking to this other criminal, let's read his little section again. It's, it's amazing. Verse 40. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said to Jesus, He said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. So, given, given the environment around this man in this moment, the fact that every other voice is communicating, aha, the fact that he is dying, the fact that he's a criminal dying justly, given the environment of this moment, what is already a miracle feels even more miraculous. This guy's statement exhibits like proof text conversion. It exhibits, it exhibits like all of the checklist for someone who has been transformed by the grace of God. You know, I've done, I've done counseling at Billy Graham crusades or events like that where I've talked to people afterward and you know, they've come forward and expressed an interest to, to uh, an interest in, in being saved and I've talked to them afterward. And, you know, you've always got these things in your head kind of you're looking for, you're listening for, because there is, give or take, basic evidences of someone being converted from darkness into light, from death into life. And so you listen for these little, these little checkpoints, right? And this guy's got all of them. He sees his own guilt. He sees his own right. He he sees Christ's righteousness. He sees that there's a a penalty due his guilt. He understands grace. He knows he has nothing to offer Jesus at all right now. This isn't isn't a, a trade. This isn't a deal. This isn't a bargain. He's literally saying, I have nothing to offer, and I'm appealing to you based on grace. He seeks Christ's kingship. He says, remember me when you enter your kingdom. He's making a public witness. Think about that. He's going against the entire moment. He's going upstream. A very countercultural moment. He's, he's even making a public witness to someone who is, who is slandering Christ, and he stands up for Jesus. Every little thing you'd want to see to accompany a conversion, you, you kind of see here. Where did this come from? Don't forget that back in earlier in the text, Jesus had prayed, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Don't forget that. Because I think here is an example of how effective Christ's prayers are. He intercedes in that moment on behalf of these people. 
And already, almost instantaneously, one of them is converted from darkness to light. That's important on two accounts. First of all, it's pretty cool. Secondly, what hope do you and I have of ever getting it right? Of ever responding rightly to the gap between what God says and what we see? What hope do we have? Only that Christ, the all-powerful intercessor, stands between us and God and intercedes, calling down fresh faith from heaven to help us respond to that gap with His righteousness. Hebrews... Hebrews 2, 7 through 8 says that Jesus was crowned with glory and honor and was given everything, given control over everything by the Father. And it really wants to emphasize everything. It really wants you to know. No, I really mean everything. And it's emphasizing this in a past tense kind of way. Jesus has been given everything. It even goes so far as to say God left nothing outside of his control. But then it says, the very next thing it says, at present, we do not see everything in subjection to him. So the statement goes hard and deep. God has everything. God's giving Jesus everything. God, Jesus has control of everything. Everything's been put in subjection to Jesus. And then it says, at present, we do not see everything in subjection to Him. This is the problem that we've been talking about. What's the solution? What's the solution for that one criminal who got it? What's the solution for you and me? What's the solution for the gap? How do we not immediately go to, God is lying to me. He says He's good, but look at my circumstances. How do we not go there? How do we actually believe in this whole Jesus thing to begin with? How do we change from this imperialistic, uh, materialistic impulse of what I see is more true than what God sees? How do we get converted out of that into an inclination to trust God? How do we move from criminal A to criminal B? Hebrews is dealing with that question. It says, first of all, let's be clear. It is all under Jesus' control. And you don't see all of it under Jesus' control. Guys, that's my experience. I think I trust that that's your experience. God says to give generously and He will provide. But then we look at the checkbook. God says we are fearfully and wonderfully made. But then we get on a scale... God says to go into all the nations and make disciples and that He will be with us. But then we look at the risks. God says that in Christ we have access to the throne of grace. But then we look at our sins. God says that He knows every hair on our head and that He has us. But then we look at all the unknowns. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to Him. So what's the solution? 
How do we wind up trusting what he sees more than what we see? Well, Hebrews continues. Immediately following that statement, we don't see everything that is in subjection to him. It says, but we do see him. We do see him. Who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Where do you go when you don't want to blame God? When you're tired of boasting in your own ability to understand because you know it's all a crock and you don't see hardly anything well? but you still can't see all that God's claiming? Where do you go? What do you look to? You look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. God will give you faith to see Him. He will not, He will not resolve the gap like you want it to be resolved. And He most certainly will not always explain why you see it one way and he says it another way. What he has done is the thing he did for this criminal. He will show you Jesus for who Jesus is. And Jesus will be the answer to every question you ever ask. Jesus will resolve the tension between what God says and what you see. And more importantly, Jesus resolves the tension between who you are and what God demands. Jesus resolves the tension between what you say and who you really are. Jesus is the answer. When God looks at me, my only hope, as this thief had, my only hope is that God would see Jesus Hebrews continues and says all sorts of things that are, if you read through Hebrews this week, you'll see this connection repeatedly. Hebrews continues and makes all of these statements about God says, so trust it. God says, so don't listen to what you see. Not ultimately. One of those is today, if you hear his voice, today, if you hear his voice, what God says. Do not harden your hearts by what you don't see. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts by what you do see. Today, if you hear his voice, look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith, and say to him, My only hope in navigating this massive gap is you. I look to you, Jesus. Let's pray. Jesus, everything has been placed under your feet. You are in control of all things. But we do not yet see everything in subjection to you. We don't see it. 
there are so many things you've said that we can't really see. So many claims you've made that we have to we have to believe almost counter to what we see sometimes, Lord. And yet your word says repeatedly that if we will just go to you and with the problem, go to you with this gap, you will provide, you will provide something better than evidence. You'll provide Jesus to be gazed upon, believed upon, walked with, trusted in. Jesus is the evidence. He is the hope. He's the solution. So we join with this second criminal in saying, I have nothing to offer you, Jesus. I can't strike a deal with you. I got nothing. But would you save me? Would you bless me? Would you remember me when you enter into your kingdom? And Lord, your word says that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And we we just want to, by faith, call out to you, Lord Jesus. You respond to this criminal. Today you will be with me in paradise. Lord, we trust in you this morning for that gap. Rather than Rather than castigate, slander you, we trust in you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.